0: kind of year are the big bank CEOs preparing for? And what kind of effect is dry January having on restaurants? Motley Fool Money starts now.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
2: Oh,
1: Global
0: Headquarters. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. How you doing, Chris? We've got the latest news from Wall Street. We've got an update on the state of food and beverage with industry expert David Hankus. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar, but we begin with the big macro. The latest inflation data shows that consumer prices fell 0.1% in December. That is not a big number, but it's the sixth month in a row that CPI has fallen, putting U.S. inflation at its lowest point
2: in more than a year, Ron. Yeah, I actually like these numbers, at least in terms of what we're trying to accomplish here, getting closer to the Fed's target of 2%. We're still quite a ways there, but th- these numbers are coming down. This is mostly related to a sharp drop in gasoline prices, but being that these numbers are from December, so they're current, but they're still two weeks old and they're backward-looking. I think inflation probably has moderated even more than these numbers indicate. and. You know, I will be very curious to see what the next report looks like. So far, the Fed has raised um, interest rates by four and a quarter percentage points. Rates are likely to exceed five percent before the Fed could pause, maybe even approaching six percent. The job market remains strong, a bit of weakness there, while certainly that would be painful for some, would probably be helpful to the bigger picture, especially if wages increases moderate. So Soon, I think the conversation will pivot away from rate hikes and more towards the consequences of a recession, which maybe uh, we can touch on a little bit later when we talk about what we're hearing from the big banks.
0: Well, let's get to the big banks, because earnings season officially kicked off Friday with some of the biggest banks reporting. J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citi all out with fourth quarter results. Jason, we don't have the time and, frankly, the interest to go through <laughs> each one of these with a fine-tooth comb, but you tell me, what caught your attention?
1: Well, you know, Chris, I mean, back in the day, this would be an industry focused month long marathon, right? (laughs) But we'll settle for a motley full money minute. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, the trend continues. Banks are continuing to take. A bit of a conservative approach, right? They're preparing for a, p- a potential downturn. They're boosting their loss reserves to account for that. Definitely seeing some benefits from the rising rates, with nice tailwinds to net interest income. Um, looking at the banks specifically, you've got J.P. Morgan revenue was up 18% from a year ago. Uh, they did. Build that net reserve, right? That that credit reserve. They built up 1.4 billion dollars in that in that reserve there. So they they you know they're preparing, I think, for a potential storm. And 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 Jamie Dimon has said, I mean, their base case is is a mild recession, like Ron was saying. I mean, we can talk about the recession uh, sort of sort of sort of conditions and and thoughts there. But it, it seems the consensus is with most of these banks is they're preparing for a mild recession at the very best, right? in thinking it could get worse but uh, I mean it, on, on the good side net interest income was up 20.3. Or was was 20.3 billion dollars for J.P. Morgan that was up 48 percent from a year ago. They do continue to see boosts in trading income uh, for fixed income instruments as rates move, but that's not enough to offset the challenges they're seeing in investment banking revenue uh, in, in the wake of of just IPO markets, which is more which more or less ceased um, in, in deal making in general. Uh, again, central case they're modeling for a mild recession. Wells Fargo much the same revenue was actually down slightly from a year ago earnings per share cut in half. But that was thanks to a seventy cent charge, seventy cent per share charge for litigation and regulatory issues. Which, unfortunately for Wells, that just seems to be a, a quarterly narrative. <laughs> I was just regular- going to say, wow, well, yeah. non-recurring. <laughs> it seems to be a quarterly narrative. They, they are getting out of the woods, but it is it is something we're going to continue to talk about. I think for 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 the foreseeable future, unfortunately, they added almost one billion dollars to their loan loss reserves for the year. Their net interest income was up forty five percent from a year ago, and then looking at banks, of America, revenue up 11%. Uh, they added 1.1. Uh, the, the provision for their credit losses of, of $1.1 billion. It was up. Uh, net interest income again, benefit there, 29% growth from a year ago. So, so they're benefiting from higher rates. They are preparing for what looks like maybe a rainy day around the corner. And I suspect we're going to hear more of the same uh, as the year goes on. Uh,
0: yeah, Ron, when you have uh, Jamie Dimon and Brian Moynihan both talking in similar terms, in terms of a mild recession, I think it's worth paying attention to. I want to get your thoughts though. Earlier in the week, Wells Fargo announced that they are stepping back from the home mortgage business, which to me is striking because they used to be the leader in this space.
2: As recently as 2019, the top lender uh, in the country. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a surprise. Obviously, they've they've had their challenges. This is the most, uh, I think, strategic shift that Charlie Sharf, uh, CEO uh, since 2019, has put in place for sure. Um, they're going to just focus on existing customers and not go after uh, new U.S. mortgages, and that's because of regulatory pressure, the impact of higher interest rates. Uh, so, they're going to actually start to look a little bit more like Bank of America and Morgan Chase now, um, which will be interesting to see going forward how their earnings reports, um, uh, certainly their top and their bottom lines are impacted by this relatively big decision by Mr. Scharf. The Walt Disney Company has a fight on its hands and it's not just from
0: competitors. Triand Fund Management, led by famed activist investor Nelson Peltz, has taken a small stake in Disney shares and wants a seat on the board. The company is urging shareholders to reject any proposal from Peltz. And this week, Disney announced that Nike chairman Mark Parker will become the new chairman of Disney's board. Ron, once upon a time, you yourself were an activist investor. What's the most interesting part of this story to you?
2: You know, the first thing that hit me is that it's hard to take on a huge company like Disney with only a small ownership stake, and and I know that certainly from experience, but. Peltz has successfully gone after big companies before DuPont, Mondelez, Procter & Gamble, the list goes on. So he knows how to do this. He's no stranger to this. Um, he's been making a strong argument, quite frankly. Disney has stumbled. The stock's near its eight year low. Uh, he points out a really kind of non existent CEO succession plan, high executive compensation, costs are way too high. Um, and I think he has some fair points. You know, the the Fox acquisition back in 2019 added a loaded debt to the balance sheet. The dividend has been suspended uh, for quite some time now, from from during the pandemic, and it continues to be suspended today. Costs at Disney Plus are very high. So there are there's lots of things this company needs to turn around and get right, and that's what makes you ripe for an activist investor comes to come in. Now. There's two big personalities here, Peltz and Iger, and they're going to butt heads until somebody either gives in or Peltz takes it all the way to a proxy fight, um, which he intends to pursue. Usually, these things are settled before that. Um, They're taking some places such as, as you said, putting a new chairman in place. That's an interesting decision to me. It's rough to be the chairman of Disney and Nike at the same time. I'm not sure I love that decision. But uh, it will be interesting to see how this plays out, um, because whether Pelts forces it or not, Disney definitely has some restructuring to do. I'm a Nike shareholder,
0: and I'm positive I don't (laughs) love this decision. (laughs) Uh, Disney was part of another corporate story this week, the CEOs of Disney, Starbucks, and News Corp. Became the latest to announce that employees must return to their offices. Jason, these are three very different businesses, but the one thing all of these announcements had in common was the use of the word collaboration.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we've we've talked about this a lot. I feel like we've lived through this, um, and, and and we're we're continuing to live through this. It, it, it's it's just this this push and pull. Um, you know, remote work, hybrid work—it has its virtues. Collaboration ain't one of them. I can tell you that. I mean, it just—it <laughs> is very difficult to capture that lightning in a bottle, so to speak, right? When everybody is siloed and separated, and so I—I I don't think it's any accident that more employers are calling folks back to the office every day. I mean, Disney and Starbucks are not. They're not isolated in this, right? I mean, we're seeing more and more companies doing this every day. I mean, businesses, period, they're falling short. And to ignore the biggest, single biggest change that has been made to these businesses, to all businesses over the last three years in fully distributing their workforce is just naive, I think. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why businesses could be falling short, right? I mean, it's a very difficult time, I think, for everyone. But you've got to look at everything, and you have to look at the biggest changes that have been made. And there's no question that, that the way that we work, right? this has been one of, if not the biggest change that we've witnessed over the last several years. And so, I think for CEOs, they're starting to take a look at this and saying, hey, you know what, let's at least try to start eliminating what could be going wrong. Let's all get back together. We need all hands on deck here. We need to sort of reestablish the base of what made these businesses to begin with. I mean, certainly some businesses will be able to adjust to this to this sort of new uh, paradigm. Better than others, but I think there are a lot of businesses out there where really, honestly, collaboration is just the lifeblood of what they do. Certainly, Disney falls in that category, but I think we're seeing a lot of these businesses really do fall in that category. So it's not surprising to me to see this. And I know a lot of folks say, "Well, you know, these are just these are these are arbitrary decisions, and these are just CEOs who are on a power trip and looking to micromanage and yada yada yada." Well, you know, they better have some data to back it up. Well, I don't know about you, but Chris the shortfall of the business is the data. right? The fact that these businesses are suffering, I think is legitimate data for them to at least start saying, hey, let's try getting everybody back together and see if we can't figure out exactly what's going wrong here.
2: One thing interesting to me is that they're calling their employees back three or maybe four days out of the week, not full-time. And I'm wondering, is that because they're worried about an all-out revolt by the employee base, or do CEOs actually believe that hybrid Is the new model going forward, and then that can make sense. I think we'll have to look back five years from now or even 10 uh, to answer that question.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, generally speaking, I think most of us agree. I think hybrid is the way of the future, right? I think we all agree that works well for everyone. It's just trying to figure out that balance. And by the same token, I, I, I would not be surprised, right? I mean, job cuts have been a very big theme here of 2022 and 2023 it wouldn't shock me. A lot of these CEOs are saying, hey, listen, you got to get back to the office. We're going to force your hand here. And if they happen to witness a little organic attrition because of that, well, then that's all the better because they're looking to right-size their businesses anyway.
0: The biggest restaurant chain in America is up for sale. More on that after the break, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. If you're enjoying this show, then let me tell you about the other new show that we launched this week. It's called Stock Advisor Roundtable. It is our first-ever member-exclusive podcast. We partnered up with our friends at Spotify to bring this show to members of our Stock Advisor service along with Epic Bundle and The Motley Fool's Advanced Investing Services. So, if you're listening to us right now on the radio, just go to Spotify and simply search for Stock Advisor Roundtable. And if you're listening on a podcast app, check the description of this episode for how to link your Motley Fool premium account to a Spotify account So you can start listening. Delta Airlines wrapped up its fiscal year in style. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, but guidance for the first quarter sent shares of Delta a little lower on
2: Friday. Still, Ron, it's been a good January for Delta shareholders so far. Yeah, but you nailed what's going on here with the stock on Friday. the quarter looked fine. Operating revenue up 8%, 7% domestically, up 5% internationally. Domestic corporate sales, which everyone has an eye on, uh, have recovered about 80% from 2019 levels. So good, but not back to where we were pre pandemic. Operating margins are still weak um, 11.6% versus 12.5% in 2019's fourth quarter. Most of these comparisons are to 2019 because it, it it evens out, it normalizes these comparisons and earnings were down 13% from that 2019 level as well. Uh, but the company was able to pay down uh, almost $5 billion of debt. Um, but as you say, the stock uh, reacted mostly to first quarter profits forecast being below analyst estimates. They did reiterate full year. Fuel and labor costs are the primary culprit for that week forecast. 34% pay hike to pilots is on the table. They've got to hire people to to kind of service the demand that they're seeing? Um, so we'll we'll see what the the net rest of, of the next couple quarters look like. American Airlines, interestingly, just lifted its revenue pro, uh, profit revenue and profit outlook for the December quarter, and they'll report uh, fully on that later this month. Outset Medical
0: updated their guidance for the fourth quarter and the full fiscal year. You know, normally, Jason, you get these kind of pre-announcements. It's not great news, but shares of Outset Medical up a bit on this
1: one. Yeah, I think you. I think you. I think we all agree. It feels. Like, it feels like uh, pre-announces are, are never really a good thing. In this case, it feels like it was. It was ultimately good news. I mean, their last earnings call was November eighth, twenty twenty two. So Q four results won't be out actually for another month. Um, but but this, I think, gives us at least an idea of, of how management is feeling after what was a, a I think a volatile. Best way to describe it: a volatile twenty twenty two. A reminder, you know, the outset they 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 have the first hemodialysis system on the market with the FDA clearance for two way wireless data transmission. So their Tableau system is a trailblazer, but this is a very young business, still kind of finding its way and in, in, in getting established. But but management ultimately pegs their addressable market there: the U.S. addressable market. In the acute space at two and a half billion dollars, and the at-home market at, at eight point nine billion dollars, so there is there is a lot of opportunity here on the table, and so. Expectations. They they see the fourth quarter in full year 2022 coming in a little bit better than they did before, right? I mean, they're seeing revenue for 2022 of around 115 million dollars, um, up 12 percent from a year ago. That range was in, in you know, that that guidance was in a range of 111 to 113 million previously. So not a big boost, but a little bit. But they they continue to see that installed base grow. Their their installed base is up 54% from a year ago. They've crossed over 1 million treatments now. So, this is a company that I think continues to do the right things. They were able to kind of get through that FDA hold uh, when they made some updates to their system earlier in 2022, um, very optimistic for what for what the future holds for this business. But But it's still very clearly a young business still finding its way towards that path to profitability.
0: No restaurant chain has more locations in the U.S. than Subway. This week, The Wall Street Journal reported that Subway has hired advisors to explore a sale of the privately held company, and early indications are the deal could be worth $10 billion.
2: Ron, can I interest you in a really big sandwich <laughs> shop? Maybe. Um, I've had a few turkey sandwiches in Subway in my life. Yeah, it's an interesting company because they're private. Um, they really peaked in 2012. They stumbled along the way in the years after that. A new CEO came in 2019, closed locations, restructured the company, focused on the menu and the food quality. Certainly, we see the Eat Fresh um, advertising with lots of famous people. Um, and I think those have probably been successful. Indications are that the company does around nine to ten billion dollars in total revenue, not the revenue they collect from their franchises, but in total. So maybe we can glean some of that and look at take that and look at valuation. Dunkin', similar size, acquired for eleven billion in 2020. Domino's, similar levels of total revenue. They have a market capital of eleven point five billion. Restaurant brands bought Firehouse Subs for one billion. Subway's eight and a half times that large. So. 10 billion might very well be in the ballpark. So, Domino's is a better comp than McDonald's because, on a,
0: a restaurant
2: count level, they're closer to McDonald's. Um, For sure, McDonald's is by far the leader um, in in the space and you have to make sure you look at franchise businesses versus like Chipotle if you're going to start looking at valuation and, and comparables.
1: Sandwiches are beautiful, sandwiches are fine. I like sandwiches, I eat them all the time. I eat them for my supper and I eat them for my lunch. If I had 100 sandwiches, I'd eat them
0: all at once. All right, Jason Moser, Ron Gross, guys, we will see you a little bit later in the show. But up next, what effect is dry January having on restaurants? The answer to that question and a lot more from industry expert David Hankis. It's right after the break. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
1: I eat them for my supper and I eat them for my lunch. If I had a hundred sandwiches, I eat them all at once.
0: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Few industries have undergone as many changes over the past few years like restaurants have. to talk through the state of the industry, food, beverage, and more is David Henkes. He is a senior principal at Technomic. He's one of the top experts in the industry, and he joins me now from Chicago. David, thanks for being
3: here. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's nice to talk to you again.
0: It seems like the general consensus at the moment in terms of the overall U.S. economy is that, uh, and this is a technical term, it's going to be kind of a meh year, uh, (laughs) just in terms of, the economy, the potential for recession, whether or not we are even in one at the moment, and of course, the stock market performance as well. In terms of the restaurant industry, what are you expecting for this year?
3: Well, I think when you look at restaurants, the great news about anything within the food industry is that we are recession resistant. We're not recession proof by any stretch, but we're certainly recession resistant. And so, as you look at the full calendar year 2022 coming out of it. The restaurant industry has really largely and and in most segments fully recovered from the challenges that we saw in 2020. And so growth was up and we're actually in the process of revising and and finalizing some of our numbers for last year was up about 10 or 11%, probably gonna be a little closer to 11% from a consumer spending perspective. So consumers continue to spend in restaurants uh, continue to want that uh, out-of-home experience. And I think as we look ahead to 2023, we're still relatively optimistic. There's no question that things are starting to slow. Traffic is starting to slow. I think when you look at the numbers and the growth in consumer spending, a lot of that is masked by inflation. Now, the inflation rate just came out uh, uh, today, Friday, and and uh, it was up uh, for the year right now, year over year, a little over 8%. And so when you look at menu price inflation, there's no question that that's driving a lot of the consumer spending. And that'll probably continue into next year, into this year, 2023. We're actually expecting right now probably about a 6.5% growth in consumer spending again in 2023. Now, inflation is going to drive a lot of that real growth. If you strip out inflation, will probably be um flat, maybe up, you know, a, a little bit. So there's no question that as as the industry has recovered, we've started to plateau, the growth has started to slow, but you know, even as challenges in the economy are starting to to rear and have been rearing, we're still expecting to, to see some growth next year and it should still be a, a positive year in terms of restaurant sales. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not challenges and it's not, in my opinion, probably as hard, if not harder than ever to run a restaurant in today's um, environment. But the the top line numbers at least look pretty healthy from, uh, from an overall restaurant perspective.
0: Well, and part of that challenge has to be the way that, consumer habits have changed due to the pandemic and and possibly in some cases changed, if not permanently, certainly for the foreseeable future. Um, it, the Washington Post had a story recently, you were one of the people quoted it, and, and one of the takeaways from that story in terms of uh, the way the pandemic has changed the way we as consumers interact with restaurants is drive-through is on the rise and dine-in is Kind of on the decline, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think when you look at this off-premise, and so we classify anything off-premise as being drive-through, takeout, delivery. That you know, rightly so. During the pandemic and into 2021, was was saw triple-digit growth, as you know, it's certainly in 2020 was the only way people could really get food in a lot of cases, and so. That, while that growth is also slow, it's not necessarily going down, right? It's not reverting back to pre-pandemic levels. And so when you look at how consumers are using and especially the limited service side of the business, um, those convenience options are critical. And so we're seeing players that never would have had drive-thrus in the past, the Chipotle Lanes, Shake Shack, all of these sort of higher-end, fast, casual restaurants that are investing heavily in these convenience options to facilitate off-premise orders. And so whether it's for the consumer, whether it's for the delivery driver, whatever, at the same time, this dichotomy is really becoming much more stark, where while consumers crave that convenience, as they've come out of the pandemic, this, this notion of getting back to an experience, a social event, going out with family, friends, certainly a lot of what drove the, the growth over the last two years has been this release of that pent up demand. And that's still there. And that's really the other way that restaurants are competing now is on that experience, the, the unique uh, you know, and whether it's a beverage program, whether it's food, whether it's the service it's things that you can't get at home. And so even as convenience becomes one of the biggest drivers for growth the other end of that barbell is the experience and and unfortunately there's not a lot in between that's really the two things that are that consumers crave and that are going to be driving the business and so on limited service side and even some full service restaurants investing in those off-premise options coupled with you know how do we as restaurateurs make that in dining when people do decide to dine in how do we make that the best experience that it can possibly be and so uh, you know, th- those are the challenges. And especially with, you know, labor and cost increases and all of that, doing both of those really well is hard to do. And so, you've really got to pick your lane and and figure out what you do well. You mentioned the
0: investments that uh, restaurants make. Uh, you know, I think back even before the pandemic, uh, a restaurant chain like McDonald's was starting to invest in the self-serve kiosks that they were putting into some of their locations as they were looking to update them, refresh them, that sort of thing. I have to imagine that if you're going to commit that kind of investment, a restaurant chain has to have a pretty high degree of confidence, don't they? That the, Again, that some of the changes that we've seen in behavior are going to stick around for a while.
3: I, I think so. There's a lot of restaurant chains that are built that are betting heavily on this convenience option, right? And so whether it's the whole new footprint and and reducing uh, seating capacity to focus on, you know, two or three or even four drive-through lanes, there there's big shifts in how restaurants are investing. The technology piece is also interesting. And we've been getting a lot of questions lately about uh, automation within restaurants. And there's no question that as the labor situation remains challenging there's a lot of discussion about how can we automate or or reduce headcount. and the the unfortunate part about it is, I don't think we can. I think automation is is continuing, and I think we're we're going to continue to see experimentation here, but we're we, the hospitality and restaurant business, is at its heart a very labor intensive business. And so while you can maybe automate certain tasks away, some of the unpleasant tasks, whether it's cleaning or you know the the cashier or whatnot, uh, you know the McDonald's CEO himself has said that they don't necessarily see an ROI in all of this investment that they've made in in the different technologies or at least the automation. Uh, and so the the future for technology is all about payment systems. it's about uh, convenience, it's about ease of you know sort of facilitating the orders and and especially that off-premise experience. But, uh, you know, this idea of automating away labor out of a restaurant is, uh, in my opinion, not going to happen anytime soon, if ever. Um, And um, so, you know, those investments are, are, um, you know, they're going to continue, but it's, uh, you know, it's still a very labor intensive um, industry. It's pretty stark to hear.
0: the CEO of one of the biggest restaurant chains in the world basically say, yeah, this isn't paying off. Yeah, um, So, we'll continue to watch that. And I, I do want to get to uh, the beverage landscape and uh, the beer industry, but I, I do have to ask you about canned water. And I want to be very specific for the listeners. I'm not talking about seltzer or sparkling water. I'm talking about still water in a can, because despite what we saw from the stock market in 2022, Liquid Death managed to raise $70 million in its latest round of venture funding last fall. And at the time, that put Liquid Death's valuation at $700 million. Is, and I, I, I see it anytime I go to the grocery store. Is canned water a trend that you think has legs, or is this just a brand that happened to catch lightning in a bottle?
3: you know it's interesting I mean it, it really shows the value of marketing and and of of you know what a unique brand name that stands out in the marketplace can can do for a company and so the short answer is yes I mean packaged water in general it remains a growth area where we've otherwise seen growth is more in the flavor the sparkling end of waters um, and and you know, it's, it, it's so hard to predict how these things will perform in the future. I mean, I think they've certainly got a brand hook that has worked for them. Um, I think at some point, they'll you'll probably see them expand into other types of waters, just because every other major uh, packaged water company has a whole portfolio of broader flavors and sparkling and still. And so at, at some point, and, um, you know, I don't have any inside information, but I got to suspect that the the lightning that they've captured uh, in 2022, at some point, they're going to have to uh, innovate around the the same way that some of the other bottled or or packaged water players are are doing.
0: Well, let's move over to alcohol then, because (laughs) the the trend that we've seen in the beer industry over the last five to 10 years is uh, some of the biggest uh, beer producers in America Really building out that non-beer portfolio in terms of hard seltzers, canned cocktails, that sort of thing. What, what does the current landscape look like right now in terms of beer and those other properties?
3: Yeah, and, and keep in mind we focus a little bit more on the restaurant side of things, and so a lot of those a lot of those sales go into uh, at-home sales, right? I mean, you, you, when you look at restaurant and food service sales, while we've certainly see, seen tremendous growth in those categories, it's off of a very small base. And so at least within the away-from-home business, it's still relatively small. But listen, it's one of those things where uh, a little bit of success breeds a lot of imitation. And so, you know, we see a lot of, um, uh, companies stampeding into it. The challenge is that, you know, this whole ready to broader, ready to drink business is, is, is really growing. And, and I think, you know, rather than the seltzers, um, you know, and you, and you've seen what Sam Adams, they had some challenges with, with their seltzer program over the last couple of years and really overestimating, um, you, you know, what the opportunities were there. I think, you know, where we're now seeing a lot more growth is in the ready to drink cocktails, uh, those continue to, to grow again within restaurants and, and the broader away from home business. It's relatively small. Um, but during the pandemic, those things really shined because takeout programs and takeout beverage programs were, again, a lot of the only ways that restaurants could sell their alcohol. And so they really shifted and, and a lot of states started allowing uh, delivery and takeout of, of beverage alcohol And so these ready-to-drink items really exploded in popularity for restaurants. Now, as people have started to return to dine-in, again, like a lot of things that really popped during the pandemic because people didn't have any other choice, it's starting to shift back the other way now. And so draft beer and things like that are starting to come back on. But listen, I mean, the the entire beverage alcohol category is still down relative to where we were pre-pandemic. And so while it's seen some tremendous growth in certain categories, particularly within Spirits, are doing really well. Um, As a category, beverage alcohol is still below pre-pandemic levels. And and a lot of that is because full-service restaurants are still, you know, trying to catch up to where they were. Bars are still down relative to where we were. Hotels, which is a big uh, segment for beverage alcohol, are still down relative to pre-pandemic. And so the growth numbers have been pretty impressive, but it's also you've got to compare it to pre-pandemic And in in a lot of those instances, we're still below where we were uh, in 2019. Depending
0: on what source of information you decide to believe, the (laughs) Dry January movement involves anywhere from a few million people to tens of millions of people. Um, Regardless of how many people are actually doing Dry January, what sort of impact does that have on the restaurant industry because i i have noticed uh, this month restaurants doing promotions for very expensive not cocktails but mocktails cocktails.
3: yeah well well listen you know beverage alcohol is by far the the you know with the exception of maybe some specialty items but is the profit driver for the menu for most restaurants and so I guess the good news about dry January is that it's one of the slowest times of the restaurant industry. And so um, the impact is a a little bit more muted than if it were dry July, as an example, right? Um, And I think at the same time, what we've seen is growing interest, not just in January, but year round for consumers and especially younger consumers, millennials, Gen Z, for non-alcoholic options. And so this mocktail program, specialty non-alcoholic drinks, Uh, have been exploding on menus. And so those from a margin perspective, and you're right there, I mean, they're charging almost as much. And in some cases, as much as they are for cocktails with, you know, high end tequila or some of the other, or uh, other spirits brands in it. And so the margin on those is still pretty good. So I think the economic impact of dry January is probably more muted than you might think it is. I mean, um, you know, restaurants are are promoting the other higher margin options that they can during January. But we've seen, you know, I, I guess a couple things. We've seen the, the participation drop. I think it was down three or four percentage points uh, even versus last year. And we were also seeing the number of people that claim that they are quote unquote drinkers from a Gallup poll drop several percentage points. And so beverage alcohol in general is, um, being consumed by fewer people overall, and I think that's part of the challenge that restaurants are having even right now as as they try to grow. I mean, beverage alcohol programs are such an important part of their margin, and uh, they're they're trying to figure out new and better and different ways to grow. And part of that is is expanding that non alcohol portion of it to appeal to those people that are non drinkers. So. Um, you know, I, th- I think restaurants have bigger issues right now than dry January. It's just another one to throw on the, the pile, but, you know, I wouldn't put it in one of their uh, top five, um, you know, issues that they're facing right now.
0: David Hankes, always great talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Great. Thanks, Chris, for your time. Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, Ron Gross and Jason Moser return. they got a couple of investment ideas you might want to add to your watch list. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Ron Gross and Jason Moser. Time for the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
1: Yeah, a little bit of a different uh, take here this week. I'm actually looking at an ETF and I'll explain why here. It's the Nasdaq CTA Cybersecurity Index, the ticker is CIBR. And as a reminder, exchange traded funds, that's just a basket of stocks. They trade on the open market, very similar to a mutual fund, but it's just unlike mutual funds, those ETF prices move throughout the day like stock prices do. They just traditionally offer better expense ratios uh, than, than, than mutual funds. But CIBR, it's built to follow the performance of of cybersecurity companies, shocker. Um, one thing I like about this ETF, though, thirty-seven holdings in the company. It, you know, it, it has a lot of companies that we really like here in our universe. I'm talking about companies like Cloudflare, CrowdStrike scale or Palo Alto, even Booz Allen Hamilton's in there, Chris. Um, and, and so for me, you know, I, I, I've always said on the show cybersecurity is just a very difficult market to fully understand for a dummy like me, right? I know that I need it, I just don't know what's best. And it feels like these challenges are always changing and evolving. So it feels like with cybersecurity, an ETF could be the way to go. And the NASDAQ CTA cybersecurity index definitely stands out. Rick, question
0: about the Nasdaq CTA cybersecurity index?
1: Jason, did you just have a really busy week and you couldn't take a stock? No, 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 no. no. I really do believe in this. The expense ratio of 0.6%, I mean, that is just a strong profile there for a company that gives you instant exposure. I really do think this could be a way to tackle the cybersecurity opportunity.
2: Ron Gross, what are you looking at? This is funny because I have two ETFs for you. Oh Rick. my
1: goodness! This was not. We didn't. We didn't. Think we did not happen. think not of this. Elsewhere.
2: Industrial Select. Spider Fund XLI gives you exposure to infrastructure and industrial companies, Caterpillar, Deer, Raytheon, companies like that, and then the Spider S and P Global Infrastructure ETF GII gives you exposure to infrastructure and energy, Duke Energy, Nextera Energy, Southern Company. Um, I think they will serve us all well in 2023. Rick, question about infrastructure
1: ETFs. Ron, did you just have a busy week and you couldn't pick a stock?
0: <laughs> yes, I did, Rick. <laughs> what do you want to add to your watch list, Rick?
1: Uh, I don't know. I'm going to go find a stock on my own, I think.
0: <laughs> ETF week here on Motley Full Money. I love it. Jason Moser, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thank That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.